Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Church leadership. I thought I'd start by just pointing out something we find in John 10. You're welcome to turn there if you want. I'll be referencing several scripture passages. You can try to keep up and turn to them, or you can listen, whatever you prefer. But John chapter 10, you know that this is the passage of Scripture where Jesus compares himself to a shepherd. Where in the Old Testament does God compare himself to a shepherd? You can say if you know. Anyone know? Psalm 23. So Jesus is taking some imagery, probably in his mind, He's a, he at least knows it, of course, Psalm 23, where God, the Lord, Yahweh, calls himself the shepherd of his people Israel. So God has already used that imagery. That imagery becomes very prominent in the life of David, who is a king after God's own heart. But David, his profession, his job, if you will, before he becomes a king, of course, is that he's a shepherd. And that imagery carries over because when God, the good shepherd, when he appoints David as the king of his people to care for them, That's one of the comparisons made in the Psalms, that David is like a shepherd. You know, a good king is like a shepherd as well. So this is imagery that's in the Old Testament already, where you have God, the shepherd, caring for his people and using other so-called shepherds, what we would call under-shepherds, in order to care for his people. And Jesus draws on this kind of imagery in verse 11 of John 10, when he says for the first time here, I am the good shepherd. He uses that word good for a variety of reasons. One one is because he's making a contrast, if you read the rest of John 10, between the hired hands who are given charge of the sheep, a.k.a. the people of Israel here, but they don't really care genuinely for the people. That's his point. So when the wolf comes... Those who are hired hands and not the actual shepherd caring for the sheep, the hired hands run away. They say, I'm not going to risk my life or my health for these sheep. When they run away, then the sheep are eaten by the wolves. But to the hired hands, that's better than them having to face the wolves. So when Jesus calls himself a good shepherd, not only is he drawing on Old Testament imagery, but he also is using that word good very specifically to say, the thing that makes me a good shepherd is my genuine care for you, his sheep. You see this, for example, in Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The leadership in Israel, the Pharisees, for example, they were supposed to be like shepherds, just like David or the good kings of the Old Testament, but they were not fulfilling that purpose. That's why Jesus calls them out in his ministry. They were supposed to be like shepherds to the people, really caring genuinely for the people, but instead they were like hired hands and they were fleecing the flock. They were benefiting themselves by using the flock for the sake of their own honor and prestige and reputation, some cases for the sake of their own financial gain, robbing widows' houses, devouring widows' houses and the like. And so when Jesus looks at the people of Israel, even though God had provided so that they would have under shepherds, he looks at them as a people without really shepherds, 
harassed and helpless, just sheep running about, no guidance. And he has compassion, and that compassion shows you now the good shepherd has showed up. It's Jesus. He, unlike the Pharisees, has compassion on the people, not because of what they can provide for him, but just out of his own heart. That's just how he feels toward the people, because he's good. So he says he's the good shepherd in verse 11, and his explanation in the rest of that verse, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't lay down the sheep's life for himself like the Pharisees. He lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14 is the second, final time he says he's the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And then he adds this, I know my own and my own know me. So there is a sense, that knowing, by the way, that's a personal knowledge, not just that he knows their names, so do the Pharisees, but it's a personal knowledge, mutual, between him and the sheep. And those are really, you could say, the two marks of what makes a good shepherd. One is genuine love for the sheep that you see in Jesus, even to laying his life down. And number two is this personal knowledge, this interaction, knowing by name, and interacting with. That's what makes Jesus not just a shepherd, but a good shepherd. Now, the interesting thing is we know that Jesus is still our good shepherd. When you read John 10, even though it was spoken 2,000 years ago, if you're a believer, you probably think of that as speaking to you, that Jesus is your good shepherd. And you're right about that. Jesus still is our good shepherd, even though he's ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of the Father, and you've never personally met him in the sense of Jesus physically. That's where we'll meet him, but you haven't yet. And yet he's still called your good shepherd. So the question becomes, how is he your good shepherd? If we say, for example, that there has to be that personal interaction, that knowledge, that love, how does he demonstrate that to you if he's so far away? There's a variety of ways. For example, his Holy Spirit who dwells within you, so Jesus is present, not in the form of, that's heresy, but Jesus is present and that presence is conveyed in a sense by the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. But one major way that Jesus shepherds us, even at this distance, is by doing what God did as a shepherd in the Old Testament, by providing under-shepherds. Human beings, like you, human beings who are less than your ultimate shepherd, Jesus, but are provided by him to express his shepherding care in your life. You see this in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 in verse 8 has a really interesting passage. He's quoting the Old Testament to show that Jesus has given spiritual gifts to the church. But he says in verse 8, therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he's using that Old Testament picture of a victor in battle who's now ascending and giving gifts to those following him. Here the picture is, though, of Jesus. That ultimately applies to Jesus. When Jesus finished his work, died, resurrected, he ascended to heaven and then the second part of what he's quoting says, and he gave gifts to men. What are the gifts that Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he gave these gifts 
to people, what are these gifts that Jesus kindly gave, if you go down to verse 11, after that little parenthesis. And he gave, here are some gifts, the apostles, the prophets, those two categories were unique to the early church, we believe, the evangelists, and notice, the shepherds and teachers, which might go with shepherds, shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So Ephesians 4 says that Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, specifically and intentionally as our good shepherd, gave shepherds. It's a shepherd giving shepherds. And that is the way that you should think of local church leadership, biblical local church leadership. We are going to talk today about elders. We could talk about deacons who form a part of church leadership. They help with practical matters, but we're actually just going to focus on elders. Elders are the under-shepherds. They are the shepherds given by your good shepherd. They are one form of God's care as your shepherd, of Christ's care in your life as your shepherd. That's one major way he demonstrates that he cares about you as his sheep, is that he gives you shepherds to care about you in flesh and blood, and that's what church elders are. So that's what we're talking about today. I don't know your church background, Unless you've been here a long time, then I do. This is your church background. It is mine. Some of you may come from different church backgrounds with different kinds of church government, and maybe even the word elder could be new to you. So we're going to carefully define what we mean by elder, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about church government as the New Testament presents it. And we will talk about ways that different religious traditions, different Christian traditions have formulated church government, different than we do here at Faith Bible, but I'll explain to you why we have a plurality of elders here. So let's just start then, jump right into it, and let's start by just asking the question, what is an elder? So if I did, if I had made a PowerPoint, that would slide on the screen. What is an elder? So you can write that if you'd like. What is an elder? All right, here's the thing about the word elder. It's a bit of a matter of convenience for us to use that word, because when you look at the New Testament, there are actually at least three terms that all refer to the same office that we describe by using the word elder. Of course, there is the word elder used in the New Testament. This was actually drawn from what happened in the Old Testament, God's people, the Jewish people, Israel. Their leadership on a local level was done via elders. Elder literally just means older. So these were the older men in a community. Obviously, they had to meet certain requirements, but they were the older men in the community would gather, and they would make important decisions for a local village, and there are parts of the world where this still takes place. That was happening in the Old Testament. When the church was born, God brought that, parts of that, into the New Testament, and so we use the term elder, the idea being that a local church should have a group of men typically older with wisdom, that's the point there, who would be in leadership. The word there is presbyteros in the Greek, and yeah, it just does mean older. That's what it means, old. So elder, that's one word. But there is another term that's used interchangeably. It's exactly the same. It's just a different word. So you have elder, number one. Number two, shepherd. And actually, The word that we use today for this is pastor. 
Pastor comes from the Latin, and it just means shepherd. Pastoral poetry, if that's your thing, is about sheep and shepherds. Pastor, that's all that pastor means is shepherd. It's just another way of saying that. So you have elder as the first. The second, you have pastor, which just means shepherd. That is used. Poimain is the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, usually as a verb, but that's in the New Testament. And then the third word that means exactly the same thing is the word overseer. This is a word, episkopos. Those parts, epi, just means over, skapas, to see, episkopos, overseer. If you're familiar with the term bishop, now remember, a lot of these words have taken on different meanings over time, not from the New Testament. That's one of them. Same with pastor. But bishop, it just means overseer. Came from Latin to Old English, and that's all it means. It's from episkopos. The little, think of the E as dropping off, the P becomes a B, and you end up with bishop. That's what happened. That's all that happened. So, bishop is episcopos, it's overseer. So, those are the three terms that describe this one office of church leadership we're talking about. But you see, it's kind of confusing to say elder, pastor, overseer, or any other variety of these terms. So, we're just going to say elder. That's what we're going to say. Is it because it's better than the other ones? No. It's just because that's what we're going to pick as a matter of convenience. So just keep in mind when you're reading your New Testament, you might say, I don't see elders all over here. I just see them here. But if you see any of those terms, elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer, we're referring to the same office. Let me just demonstrate this to you so you know I'm not making it up. This is in 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll return to this text soon. But I just want to show you these three terms all used for the same people. The beginning of 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, Peter says this, So I exhort the elders, presbyteros, we know that one, okay, so he's talking to the elders, among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd, I mono, that's a related word from the same root as poimain that we've been talking about, shepherd. So the elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And what word do you think that might be? Overseer. It's episkopos as a verb. So you have those three terms right there in just those two verses. So you see, I'm not making that up. Those three, it's the same. Elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd, pastor, overseer. Those go together. And we're just going to use the word elder to describe them. So that's an elder. Now, we need to move on from that and say, okay, that's what an elder is. How does elder fit into God's design for the local church? Here's how it fits in. God's design in the New Testament is that each local church would have what we call a plurality of elders. Plurality is an unnecessarily long way to say more than one, (laughs) but it's the way that everybody's been saying it in the discussion, so now it's the way we have to say it too. A plurality of elders, that means more than one elder, pastor, overseer, more than one. That's God's design for the local church. Let me show this to you. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. This is Paul He's planning churches. He leaves 
young Titus in Crete to set in order what remains in the church planted there. And he says in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And what is the order that Paul foresees as God's intention for that church? And appoint elders, elders, in every town, as I directed you, with every town having its own local church, and you appoint not an elder, not one head honcho pastor even. You have elders in each local church, in each town on the island of Crete. Philippians 1.1 reflects this too. We had preached through Philippians recently, and this was at the very beginning. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with thee, overseers and deacons. But wait, the elders are not mentioned. But you are such scholars of the New Testament now that you know, yes, they were. Because overseers are the same as elders. So you can see here the two offices of the church, overseers and deacons. He mentions them there in his introduction. And notice again, it's overseers with an S. It's plural, plurality of elders. We're not going to go in depth into this part of things, but we should also observe that while a plurality of elders is God's intention for the leadership of the local church, that doesn't mean that the congregation, the rest of the believers in the church, have no say in what's happening in a local church. It's not, and Peter says, don't be domineering to the leadership. It's not just, we're just going to do what we're going to do. And so, different churches have handled this differently, but there should be some input from the congregation as a whole. We actually see this in the New Testament. I'll give you an example. This is Acts chapter 6. This is, in my opinion, when the deacons are first formed. The apostles are interacting with the church in Jerusalem, and in Acts 6, starting in verse 2, it says the twelve, these are the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples... The full number of the disciples would be the church, a.k.a. the congregation. And you have the 12 who are apostles, but they're serving as the church leadership at that time. So they summon the congregation, and they say, there was an issue where certain widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. So the leadership says, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables to help these widows. Therefore, brothers, congregation, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So you see that interaction. It's not domineering. It's not, here's seven men we randomly have picked. Now deal with it. But instead, when they see the issue, they say, we've got our responsibility and leadership just very much focused on teaching and shepherding. But there is this practical issue. So we want you, congregation, to bring us seven men whom you consider wise and full of the Holy Spirit. And then we will appoint them. You know, you're not appointing. We are appointing them because we're leading. But your involvement is here and you have a say. There's another example of this in 1 Corinthians 5. This is now Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And just notice who he's addressing here. There's a sin issue in the church. A man who's committing sexual sin. The church is not dealing with it. Paul says to them, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're assembled, you assembled, that's the congregation, you assembled congregation, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I don't doubt that the church leadership was to play a leading role in that case of church discipline. But notice how Paul is addressing the church as a whole. When the church is gathered, they are all responsible to take part in this decision. The way we reflect that at Faith Bible Church, as a side note, the involvement of the congregation is we have votes. We still, looking at the New Testament, do believe that the elders are given final authority in leading the church. And therefore, there are a number of the votes that we take that are votes of affirmation where they're not binding. The elders could make a decision even if you voted against it. It's never happened. I don't think it ever will happen. But the vote then is our way of saying, hey, you give us the input. Sometimes we send surveys out. Justin's our survey guy. Sometimes we send surveys out for the same reason because we want your input and, of course, informally in conversation. We're always listening. So it's not a domineering leadership of the elders. The elders do have final say. We do have a few things here at this church, trying to balance the wisdom of the New Testament here, where your vote as a congregation actually is binding. And these are some of the more serious matters. Like if we appoint an elder, we have to have, I think it's a three-fourths majority vote from the congregation. I think the same may apply to the budget. But there are some massive items that are very large where it's binding. But that's our way of taking these New Testament passages seriously, of saying elders have final authority in leading the church, but we're together with you, and the congregation has a voice as well. So there you go. Now, one final point here. I said I was going to talk about some other forms of church government. What I've just laid out here is how we do church government, a plurality of elders with congregation input and voting. There are actually three main forms of church government that have developed in the history of the church, and they exist today. So I'm going to give them to you. We're part of the third one here, but let me give you the first. Now, these, again, would be bullet points on a PowerPoint, so you can write these down. These are a little tricky because some of these forms of church government, actually all three of them, are also names of denominations. So you've got to separate those in your mind. We're not talking about the denominations, which do have these forms of church government. It's a separate thing, okay? So for example, number one, there is a form of church government in the world, in our city, all over, that is called Episcopalian. But don't think of the denomination Episcopalian, although they have this form of church government. Episcopalian is a kind of church government where you have basically one head honcho. Maybe I should say it differently than that. But you've got one guy at the top of a hierarchy. So think, for example, of the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that the Pope is at the top of a hierarchy, and then there's cardinals, and there's bishops, and there's rectors, and then there's the believers. So there is a hierarchy leading up to one human representative. The Church of England is that way, where you have the Archbishop of Canterbury up there, and the Episcopalians are that way as well. So that's one form of church government. Now, we don't believe in that form of church government because we don't see it in the New Testament. That's the end of the explanation, so that's just how it is. Number two, Presbyterian. Again, not denominationally, 
but as a form of church government. Instead of having one human who is at the top of the chain of hierarchy, there is a general assembly of elders, leadership from various churches. So you have a general assembly at the top, and they make decisions, and then you move down from the general assembly, and you have presbyteries, which are usually elders from multiple churches of this kind of government who have gathered in a presbytery, and they're under the general assembly, and then under each presbytery, you have individual congregations with elders, okay? So instead of a pope at the top or an archbishop at the top, it's a general assembly at the top, down to presbyteries, and then down to sessions is the individual ones. We also don't practice that. I think that's much better than the Episcopalian form of church government. We do see in Acts chapter 15, a church council where Jerusalem, the leadership in Jerusalem, had gathered a lot of believers to make a decision for the churches. But that's, that's almost the extent of the basis uh, in the New Testament of anything like a general assembly is Acts 15. And that's not a lot of data to build a church government upon. So we also don't hold that form of church government. Number three, so Episcopalian, Presbyterian, congregational. Now this is actually the kind of church government we would fall under. Again, there was a denomination called congregational. If you read the Puritans, there were congregationalists, but we're not talking about them. Congregational is where each individual church, the congregation, has a leadership over it that's not ultimately accountable to an archbishop, for example, or a general assembly. There are different kinds of congregational government. So just for example, one common thing that you will see in some denominations, especially Baptist denominations, is you have a pastor who is kind of the head guy, and he's leading everything, he's out front leading everything, and he will have a deacon board, so he'll have deacons with him. And the pastor, either over the deacons or with the deacons, they're basically running the church. Sometimes instead, you'll see a church board that the congregation puts together, and then the elder is under the church board as a kind of accountability. So that happens as well. Again, these are really, I think, matters of wisdom. You don't find a church board in the New Testament. It's not in the New Testament, yeah. And even those who have deacons functioning with the pastor, I think, that's, I think that's just a misuse of the word deacon. It should really be elder, but in some cases just functioning that way. Really what we're seeing in the New Testament is this plurality of elders in individual congregations. That's the kind of church government we have here. We are non-denominational, so we are not under a denomination, but we're not against voluntary associations with denominations or with organizations. But again, all we're trying to do here is honor the New Testament data that we have. Oh, yes, Mary Beth. So, how would it work if you mm. had like a multi-site church? Oh, yeah. Yeah, do you want Mark Dever's answer or my answer? <laughs> Mark Dever is against it. Don't do it. He's so against it. And part of Dever's opposition, she's asking about multi-site churches, for example. You have a multi-site church. And those often are under the congregational form. But um, yeah, Dever's against that because of what it communicates. 
I'm not so against that. But I think in those cases, it does take a lot of wisdom of how are we going to reflect what we're finding in the New Testament where you have elders overseeing. And honestly, there would be involved in the answer to that conversation we won't have right now, which is what do you do when you have elder pastors more who are on staff and some who aren't? That complicates things. Even Dever has to deal with that because he does have staff elders, non-staff elders, and staff who are not elders. But I think the kind of essence of it is we have to make sure whatever we're doing, some of it's going to be practically adapting to what's going on, but we've got to reflect the fact that there are a group of men who are specifically the elders leading the church. And I think, I think you can do that in multi-site. Of course, I've never done it, so that's easy for me to say. But I think you can, yeah. Does that answer your question? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. All right, good. All right, so those are the forms of church government. But again, you've seen the New Testament passages that we're using here, a plurality of elders. We do, for convenience, tend to call me a pastor because I am paid to teach. But I just want you to know, that's not New Testament language. I mean, I am a pastor, but Justin's a pastor, Andrew's a pastor. All the elders, you know this. You know this by now. We are all pastors. It just means shepherd. But sometimes, it's not really a battle I'm going to fight, okay? If you want to call me the pastor, you can call me the pastor. But just know, we're all the pastors. And in a plurality of elders, there's a sense in which I'm kind of taking the lead and saying this is the direction we're going, partly just because I have the time to do it. That's what you've paid me to free up my time to teach and set some direction here. But there's a real equality among elders. We don't see like the bishop who's in charge. It is a plurality of elders making decisions. Now, just as a side note, is that inconvenient to have a plurality of any men making decisions about anything? Well, yes, yes, that is inconvenient. Glad you brought that up. That is very inconvenient, isn't it? Because are we always going to agree on everything? No. Is that going to slow us down from what we can accomplish? Well, yes, it is. And that's why many churches say, forget that. Put that one dude in charge who's visionary and lead the way. And everybody follow. It's not in the New Testament. (laughs) So we're not doing that. We're Faith Bible Church, so we can't do that. And so there are inconveniences, but there's so much more benefit and wisdom, even for myself, ideas that I have had for this church that, praise God, have been shot out of the sky mercilessly. And you should praise God for that, genuinely, because now looking back, like, wow, it's so good we didn't do that, you know. So that is the wisdom of a plurality of elders. All right. So that is all under what is an elder, if you're wondering. What is an elder? That's what an elder, there's a plurality of them in a local church, that's what they are. I want to take a minute, yeah, we got a minute, I want to take a minute and talk about, I'm going to skip to my last point. Good thing I don't have a PowerPoint. So let's say, what is a good elder? What is a good elder? If we have time, we'll talk about what does an elder do more, but I want to just, this is actually the New Testament emphasis on elders. More than what they do is what they are. What is, so we did, what is an elder? What is a good elder? And for this, I'm drawing on two passages in the New Testament that list out the requirements for appointing someone to be an elder in a local church. This is 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 7, 
and Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, both of them literally say if you're going to appoint an elder, they have to meet these criteria. These two lists overlap for the large majority of the time. There are a few differences. I have counted 20 requirements for an elder by meshing these lists together, but someone else might count 21 or 2 or 19. Depends on how you mesh them, but I'm meshing them and I find 20 requirements for a good elder. Before I get to those 20, as a side note, this was assumed when Paul wrote, so he didn't have to make a point of it, but it is not assumed now. An elder is a man. An elder is a male. God's intention for leadership in the home and leadership in the church is the same, where there are men who are fulfilling the role of elder, and women are called to beautiful, wonderful roles in the church, just like in marriages, but it is not the position of leadership. So these are men, and all of the adjectives in these lists are masculine, and it's only men who are described. That was assumed in Paul's day, but just to make that clear. All right, so I have 20 items here. I'm just going to go through them. I've broken them up into one, two, how many do I have here? One, two, three, four, five. Roughly five categories of requirements for an elder. The first category is an elder has to have a good reputation. Here are three items. You won't be able to write this fast, sorry. So you might have to go back or I'll give you my notes. But here are the three items from the list that go under that. One, they have to be above reproach. Two, they have to be respectable. And three, they have to be well thought of by outsiders. So if we are appointing an elder here like we just did with Bob Walther, then we are looking at what is their reputation in the community generally. Now, there will always be persecution, and the world will always hate good, faithful believers. So we take that into account. These are not just popular people. They could be hated by groups of people. But what we mean is that if someone's going to be an elder, they can't have such scandalous sins in their life that people out in the community go, oh, that person. Oh, that guy who's just always angry. The guy who's just always grumpy. That guy who treats his family terribly. If people have that opinion and there's some justification for it, then you can serve in the church and grow because we're all growing together, but you will not be an elder. Number two. Elders have to have humility. So there is an item, not a recent convert. So you cannot have an elder who's a new believer. And he specifically says because that person could become conceited. You get a brand new believer, zealous and fresh, super excited, and then just throw them into leadership. They will have many ideas. And if you're in their way, what's wrong with you? And they charge ahead. And there's, it's easy to become conceited. So you've got to put them through the school of hard knocks. People have to go through disappointments. Their ideas shot out of the sky. You need a lot of those happening to humble you. Thorns in your flesh to keep you humble. And that just takes time. So not a recent convert for the sake of humility. Also with humility, there's a requirement not arrogant. You can't have an arrogant elder, although there are many, but may God keep us from that. Third category, and this one overlaps with humility. It really does, so there's no perfect way to do this, but I'm going to call this category, and it's the biggest one, self-control. Now, 
underneath the self-control category, there is this general self-control. So there's a requirement, sober-minded, and another one, self-controlled, or also the word disciplined is used. So just in general, an elder has to be self-controlled. So, you know, you see Bob, just the way he handles himself is very self-controlled. It doesn't mean that an elder can't be excited and excitable and personality is fine, but there has to be a sense of self-control about the elder's life. Also, <laughs> I missed a joke. What's this? What? Personality. <laughs> Am I doing it? That's why I had to give that caveat, because I'm not Bob. <laughs> Bob is Bob, and I'm not. Also, self-control in family is required. Here's a requirement. The husband of one wife of course, that would forbid polygamy, but that's not an issue in our day. That would mean faithful, married, and faithful. I think that would mean if you're married, faithful. I don't know that's a requirement that you have to be married to be an elder. We don't know if Tim- Timothy was a young man. We don't know if he was married. Maybe he was. Paul himself giving this command was not married. So I can put that requirement on someone. But if someone's married, they have to be pure, faithful to their spouse. Another one, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then Titus puts it this way, his children are believers, but the Greek word is pistos, which also means faithful. So that is the way I take that. I use 1 Timothy 3 to help me understand Titus, because there are some who say you can't be an elder, even if your grown children are not believers, you can't be an elder. I respect that view. I don't share that view. I'm using 1 Timothy 3 to help me understand the single word in Titus of pistos. His children are, I'll say, faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So an elder, if he has children in the home, because that's the emphasis in 1 Timothy 3, keeping his children submissive and managing his own household. I do think that's different when the children grow older and leave the home. They form their own households. But while children are in your household, there has to be a level of submissive. Now, what is that level? And that is a fantastic question because you all know my children, and we are working on this, aren't we? It's not perfection. However, if my children got so crazy that they were out of control and very disruptive, at some point, I just couldn't be an elder if I can't keep my household under control. So we're not talking about perfection, thankfully. But we are talking about a degree of submissive, here he says, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, especially as they get older. Then there's self-control in material things. It says not a drunkard. I think that would include any substances. Also not a lover of money and not greedy for gain. So self-control in how we view material things. And then finally, self-control in our treatment of others, not violent. You would say, an elder could never be violent. You would be surprised. You would be surprised. So not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, and not quick-tempered. And that, I can just say from experience how important that is for leadership in a church, for elders in a church, because... You know, we're living together, and if a shepherd's being a good shepherd, he's with the sheep. And in leadership, you get all of the blessings of leadership. I mean, people 
write you cards. So many of you have given us very kind cards lately. Thank you for that. I'm trying to write you a card back to say thank you. It's coming eventually, but for now, thank you for that so much. There are all the blessings of leadership, but also in leadership, you're making decisions that impact a lot of people's lives, and that can be scary. You're also going to get quite a lot of criticisms, some fair, some absolutely not fair, doesn't matter. It was H.B. Charles, actually, he's a pastor. He had a list of uh, tips for pastors, young pastors, and one, the one that always stood out to me was he said, don't take it personally. Even when it's personal, don't take it personally. And I think that for elders is very vital. Can you receive criticism even, and I would say especially, unjust criticism where you have 10 reasons why that's not right at all, but you're receiving that, and can you receive it? Actually listen to it. Try your best to derive something good from it, even if you disagree with it, and respond calmly and not think differently of that person. Now, that is like a mammoth task that requires the Holy Spirit's work, but that's so essential for leaders in a church so things don't turn petty, which they can. So that's what you see here, not quarrelsome, not quick-tempered. All right, another category here I'm just going to call upright. I don't know what else to call this. These are just positive, righteous behaviors. Hospitable, have people in your home. A lover of good. Upright, which is really righteous is the word there. And holy. And then the very last category is just its own little number 20 item, able to teach. 1 Timothy 3 says they must be able to teach. And then Titus says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The primary role of elders is the word of God and prayer. It's given to us in Acts chapter 6. And that's why when you compare the lists of what's required of a deacon in 1 Timothy with the list of an elder, they're almost exactly the same except that an elder has to be able to teach. So elder, pastor, shepherds, overseers, we lead by teaching. It's not our authority ultimately. We're under shepherds. It's God's authority. So it's our teaching of his word and helping to apply that to the body and to your life. That is the way that Christ shepherds you through us. And then we pray for that word to be effective in your life. That's basically the whole, those are the tools we have. Which brings us now really to our last point here, which is what does an elder do? We see all the things required of what an elder is. What does an elder do? And that is basically, if I can summarize it, what elders do. This is why, although it's been popular in recent decades, especially with the church growth movement, it's been popular to see the leaders of a local church as kind of CEOs of a business. And that's a very American thing for us to do. That's not accurate. That's not right. CEOs in a business are getting things done. That's not primarily what elders are doing. Primarily, we're facilitating what God is doing in His people. It's less flashy stuff usually. There may be building projects and those kinds of practical things, but that's not the main calling of pastors. The main calling of pastors is counseling with you when you're struggling in your marriage to help you reflect the fruit of the Spirit in your treatment of your spouse. That's what elders are called to do day by day, or teaching like this, or teaching from the front, but also house to house. It's being involved in your life when you're suffering, coming alongside you, caring for you, praying for you when you don't even know about it. 
the word of God and prayer. That's what elders do. And it's because of that role that elders are given also this sort of setting of direction for the church because it's God's word that sets the direction for our church. So God calls the elders as leaders to interpret and understand God's word and as much as we can, the times we live in and the state of the body and to say this is the direction we should move in. Usually it's those direction things that are mainly thought of as that's what pastors do. Get up there, build the churches, set the five-year plan, accomplish stuff, get the people through the door. No, <laughs> that's, that's not it. That's what CEOs do. It's not what pastors do. Pastors should smell like sheep. If you've ever read the book on church elders in the Nine Mark series, it's by Jeremy Rinney, and I think it's chapter two. It's called Smell Like Sheep. And he actually says in that book, and I'll close with this, he says, if we had to summarize an elder's job description, we might simply say, shepherd the flock. If you remember only one thing from this book, then let it be that elders are pastor shepherds and their core job is to tend the church's members like shepherds tend their sheep. To be more precise, elders are under shepherds who serve the good shepherd by leading his sheep. And he says that happens as they engage in relationships with church members. So I hope that we elders here have done a good job of not being flashy. We're not that exciting. <laughs> Is that on purpose? I don't know, but it serves you well either way. There's nothing exciting or flashy about us in leadership here, but we're trying to be faithful and bring you God's word and shepherd you through life. 